Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. The old order did not disappear. Andrew Johnson, the Tennessean who became the president after Lincoln's assassination on April 14, 1865, sought quick reconciliation. He pardoned most of the rebels and put them in charge of reconstructing state governments. He directed that the vast tracts of land seized by the Union Army be returned to their old owners. He asked only that the rebel states ratify the 13th Amendment and repudiate the Confederate debt to earn readmission to the Union. White Southern leaders moved quickly. They drafted state constitutions incorporating black coats, which denied black men the right to vote and hold office, excluded black children from public schools, and imposed harsh labor laws designed to keep ex-slaves at work. Under the black codes, for instance, Freed people could be charged with vagrancy if they did not sign a year-long labor contract with white employers. By December 1865, 10 of the former Confederate states, all but Texas, had met the president's requirements for readmission. Violence against freed people had become widespread. Beyond the many individual beatings and murders, there was mass slaughters. In Memphis, Tennessee, on May 1st through the 3rd, 1866, 46 blacks and two whites were killed by mobs who also torched much of the black community and raped several black women. A white mob rioted in New Orleans on July 30th, killing at least 35 blacks and injuring more than a thousand others. Both riots were suppressed by federal troops, but not local police. Reconstruction stalled Congress failed to override Johnson's veto of an act establishing military courts to prosecute the multitudes of civil rights violations, but Congress did override another veto to pass a Civil Rights Act of 1866, entitled All Americans Except Indians to the Full and Equal Benefit of Citizenship Without Regard to Race. Congress also passed the 14th Amendment, which prohibited States from violating any citizen's rights are failing to give every citizen equal protection under the law. The Civil Rights Act was routinely ignored. The amendment failed to win ratification rejected by every state legislature from the former Confederacy except for Tennessee. On March 2, 1867, 
Over another presidential veto, Congress passed a new Reconstruction Act. The ten former Confederate states that had rejected the 14th Amendment came under martial law. To rejoin the Union, these states were now required to allow black men to vote and hold office, to exclude former Confederate officials from voting and holding office, and to ratifying the 14th Amendment. Reconstructed governments ratified the 14th Amendment July 1868 and also the 15th adopted March 1870, which prohibited states from depriving citizens of voting rights on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. They eliminated all property requirements for voting or holding office. They recognized labor's right to organize. They abolished imprisonment for debt. They built public hospitals, orphanages, and asylums. They created the South's first free public school system. Black workers organized to improve their wages and working conditions. In March 1866, field workers in Louisiana stopped work when the proprietor was late paying monthly wages. Black washerwomen, as they called themselves in Jackson, Mississippi, announced on June 20th that year that they would no longer work for less than $1.50 a day. Radical Reconstruction had severe limitations. One was the failure to recompensate and redistribute a vast area acres of farmland President Johnson had returned to the planters. Few freed people ever acquired their own farms. Most became sharecroppers. Sharecropping rested on debt and credit. Contracts ran a calendar year, bound and an entire family, provided a small monthly wage, and promised landlords a share, one-fourth to one-half of the crop. On the annual counting day, the landlord first deducted various levies against proceeds, payments for seeds, tools, and draft animals supplied by the landlord, and for goods and supplies purchased on credit, fines for days missed for sickness, bad weather, or absence, and for disobedience or insubordination. After deductions, the workers' share might amount to only a few dollars. Sometimes the deductions were so large and the proceeds so small that the worker owed money to the landlord. A family that ended the year free and clear could look for a new contract with a new landlord, but families still in debt had to work another year. Neither the Freedmen's Bureau nor the U.S. Army could stop the violence. Organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of the White Camellia unleashed a wave of arson, beatings, rapes, and murders targeting the black community. Political leaders and activists, school teachers, professionals like doctors and lawyers, and independent farmers and small business people, and anyone who organized unions, strike our other labor actions. By 1870, every ex-Confederate state had been readmitted and an 1872 Amnesty Act restored electoral rights to most ex-Confederates. Following his re-election, President Grant appointed prominent white Southerners to federal jobs and pardoned Klansmen convicted of violating freed people's civil rights. The Freedmen's Bureau was dismantled, 
the planters and their allies went to work on the radical governments. Conservative Democrats, sometimes in alliance with white Republicans, had come to power in most of the states where white voters were the majority. Now the counter-revolution turned to states where black men formed substantial voting blocs. Combining terror campaigns to keep African Americans from voting with fraudulent electoral tallies when they did, Democrats came to power in Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Texas by 1875, and Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina in 1876. Labor was itself divided, especially by widespread racial animosities, and organized actions often stopped at the color line. The history of the National Labor Union shows both labor's high hopes for radical change and the difficulties of achieving it. Founded in 1866 at a labor convention in Baltimore, the NLU drew together a large network of local and national unions of metal workers, coal miners, and other trades. The NLU preached and sometimes practiced labor solidarity across gender and racial lines. Several women's unions participated, including the newly founded Daughters of St. Crispin, the female counterpart of the Shoemaker's Knights of St. Crispin, and the first national union of women industrial workers. The NLU held the first national labor convention to endorse organizing working women, urging them to join existing unions or build new ones to force employers to do justice to women by paying them equal wages for equal work. The NLU never endorsed women's rights to vote, though it did seat Elizabeth Cady Stanton from the Women's Suffrage Association at its 1868 convention. But relations with the suffragists were uneasy. Some women unionists, the New York and Massachusetts daughter of St. Crispin, for example, supported women's suffrage. Others argued that working women could better their lives more effectively by organizing unions than by agitating for the vote. The movement against Chinese labor started in California, where it had been brewing since the 1850s, when white miners formed vigilante gangs to drive Chinese miners from the gold fields. In 1860s, the Central Pacific Railroad hired 12,000 Chinese men, 90% of its construction force, and paid at two-thirds the going rate for white laborers to build the western run of the first transcontinental railroad. By 1870, close to 50,000 Chinese immigrants lived in California, 12,000 of them in San Francisco. Black workers were affected too. Some plantation owners in Louisiana and Mississippi tried replacing black workers with Chinese, though they found the Chinese all too quick to respond to mistreatment with mass protests. In fact, the NLU stereotype of Chinese was quite undeserved. In 1860, Chinese laborers staged an exceptionally large and brave strike for a favorite NLU cause, the eight-hour day. 5,000 Chinese men blasting tunnels and laying track through the Sierra Nevada mountains 
down their tools and told their bosses eight hours a day good for a white man all the same good for Chinamen. The NLU was somewhat more consistent with the black workers. It endorsed organizing black workers from the start and by 1869 delegates from black organizations were attending NLU conventions. Nonetheless, the NLU never made an effective alliance between black and white workers and almost none of the Federation's constituents unions admitted black workers. Delegates from 18 states came to Washington. They proposed to work for equal employment opportunities for black workers. They called also for equality before the law, equal to public schools, eligibility for jury service. They sought land for freed people. They endorsed the Republican Party as the best, though imperfect, safeguard for free people in the South. Compared to the NLU, the CNLU took a broader view of racial solidarity. Black workers also worried about Chinese competition. At a local meeting held in November 1869 in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, a resolution condemning the use of contract Chinese or coolie labor that was forcing American laborers to work for coolie wages or starve and crowding us out on all sides and reducing the working man to a state worse than slavery. But the local meeting in Macon passed a resolution extending the right of fellowship to John Chinaman or any other man, and the national meeting agreed. Labor organizations everywhere faced harsh repression with the economy collapsed following the Panic of 1873. 5,000 businesses closed, unemployment soared, and employer resistance escalated. More and more coordinated by citywide and industry-wide employers' associations. Countless local and several national unions were entirely wiped out. The rest shrank sharply. In 1870, more than 30 national unions functioned, and union membership totaled about 300,000. By 1877, just nine national unions remained, and union membership had fallen to less than 50,000. In the latter year, only one-fifth of the U.S. labor force had steady full-time jobs. Employers took advantage of racial divisions among workers to procure scabs during strikes. In June through July 1874, white coal miners in southern Ohio's Hawking Valley struck against a wage cut, and mine owners imported black workers to replace them. In April 1877, black stevedores in Richmond, Virginia, struck the Powhatan Company shipping firm against a 25% wage cut. The company immediately hired 40 white scabs and police escorted them to work, dispersing a black crowd that had gathered to enforce the strike. Where the workers cooperated across the color line, they were stronger. In April 1873, black workers led a strike for four months back pay by about a thousand trackmen, both black and white, on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad near Beckley. 
in southern West Virginia. This was an especially militant strike. The trackmen seized a switching station, wrecked a mo locomotive, and blocked tracks with stones and stumps. But only a few months later in November, with the depression now underway, 200 black Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad laborers on a tunnel project near Richmond, Virginia, also struck for back pay, about two months worth. Within days, the company had replaced them with newly arrived Italian immigrants. The strike was lost, and the black strikers lost their jobs and their back pay. In the South, state and local governments could not bring force and law fully into the service of employers until radical reconstruction was brought down. In August 1876, black workers on the rice plantations in South Carolina's Cambahee River District staged a mass strike for cash wages instead of chits, good only at plantation stores. Ten strikers were tried before a black judge in Beaufort, South Carolina, and set free to the applause of supporters gathered in front of the courthouse. The planners finally agreed to pay cash wages as required by state law. That fall's state elections overturned Reconstruction in South Carolina and foreclosed any possibility for such victories in the future. As the South descended into its long night of apartheid, state and local governments elsewhere also rushed to repress labor unrest. During the hungry winter of 1873 through 74, labor activists in New York City organized mass meetings and demonstrations demanding public assistance to the unemployed. On January 13, 1874, thousands of men and women and children rallied in Tompkins Square on the city's Lower East Side, expecting to be addressed by Mayor Williams Havemeyer. Instead, the mayor sent the police who charged into the square without warning, clubbing left and right as mounted officers chased down people fleeing through the side streets. Hundreds of demonstrators and bystanders were injured, several arrested and sentenced to prison terms for resisting arrest. The city's unemployment movement stalled and dissipated in the wake of this brutality. The miners in Shulkill County had hardly finished burying their dead when the great railroad strike swept across the country. Taking the railroad magnets by surprise, railroad workers had absorbed wage cuts after wage cuts, amounting to over 60% since the Panic of 1873. Their strikes were broken up by Pinkerton agents and the, their fraternal brotherhoods blacklisted. At Martinsburg, West Virginia, a couple of dozen more firemen left their freight trains and a crowd gathered in support. When the mayor arrested three leaders, the crowd freed them. When the company tried to send out freight trains with new firemen, the brakemen walked off and the strikers blocked the trains. On Tuesday, B&O officials called on Governor Henry M. Matthews, who ordered two companies of militia into Martinsburg. The militiamen refused to fire on the strikers. The strike spread to other junctions, and by the end of the day, 500 men were out, joined by 200 boatsmen on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, and the freight blockade 
at Martinsburg had stalled 70 trains with 1,200 cars, many fully loaded. The BNO suggested that Governor Matthews ask President Rutherford Hayes for help. The President complied, and on the morning of Wednesday the 18th, 400 soldiers, many just returned from South Carolina, left Washington and Baltimore for Martinsburg, riding a special train provided by the BNO. There the troops pushed the crowds back with bayonets and manned two trains, one going in each direction. The next day, 13 trains moved, all manned with troops. On Friday, July 20th, in Baltimore, state militia companies were stranded at Camden Station, surrounded by an angry crowd in Pittsburgh, where the local militia again refused to fire on the crowd supporting the strikers. Governor John P. Hartrampt ordered Philadelphia militia companies to the scene. Arriving on Saturday, they fired on the crowd, retreated into the Pennsylvania Railroad's roundhouse, then withdrew under fire after a blazing rail car was rolled into the building. At least 40 civilians were killed, 500 rail cars, 104 locomotives, and 39 buildings went up in flames. At Johnstown, they were stoned. At Reading on Tuesday, the 24th, the militia company from Morristown threatened to fire on the company from Easton, then stacked their arms and refused to deploy against the citizens. In St. Louis, a general strike developed and lasted five days. The railroads had quickly restored wage cuts, but the relay depot on East St. Louis was controlled by a committee representing workers from four lines. The relay committee appealed to their brothers across the river who went out in sympathy. The executive committee called on Missouri Governor John S. Phelps to convene the legislature to pass laws enforcing an eight-hour day and prohibiting the employment of children under 14 in factories or dangerous occupations. But the tide had turned. Martinsburg had been pacified by Thursday the 19th. The Baltimore riots were over by the following Monday, and Pittsburgh was subdued the next day. Overall, more than 100,000 railroad workers, about half the total, and affecting about two-thirds of the nation's lines, had gone on strike, and cities from Baltimore to Buffalo and Albany to St. Louis and Chicago had been occupied by troops. Both blacks and whites participated. Many people in the Martinsburg crowd were black Black and white coal miners together halted trains in the surrounding countryside. Black workers in St. Louis closed canneries and docks. Black boatsmen stopped steamboats on the Mississippi. And the executive committee's five-person delegation to the mayor included one black man. In Galveston, Texas, the strike began with black track layers and construction workers and won a 30% increase, but racial animosity prevailed in San Francisco on July 24th. A mass meeting to discuss news of the disturbances spawned a mob of young men who rampaged through the city's Chinatown, wrecking laundries and other small businesses. Anti-Chinese riots continued two more nights, and one Chinese laundryman was killed. 
please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.